So Nicholas Bornos of Capital Inc. And uh, I'm again delighted to welcome you to another terrific panel at our forum on the product tanker sector. So just before coming on board, everybody was saying, hey, Nicholas, you always say that it's a terrific panel and it's a great panel. And I was saying, but you know, this is the truth because on one hand, we put together relevant content. And on the other hand, I'm gratified to have industry leaders like we have now. So when you have the right topics and the right people, who's not gonna come and listen? So uh, I would like to extend a huge thank you to all of you for being a part of this panel. And I will turn it over to uh, Jim Sirenza from DNB Markets, our partner in today's event. Uh, so Ted, the floor is yours. I will let you introduce our speakers who need no introduction, but nevertheless, the floor is yours. And thank you again. Good afternoon, and my thanks to my panel uh, today. We've got uh, Eddie Valentes, founder, chairman, CEO of Pixis. We've got Carlos D. Matola, CEO and board member of Diomico. Michael Stove, who you'll recognize by the really fancy tie, uh, CEO of Hafnia. Tony Gurney, CEO of Ardmore. And Jacob Meldgard, CEO of Torm. Before we get going, just to paint a picture, and I think it's always easier to look at graphs and look at pictures to save a few words. Could you put the slides up, please? All right, so the, the, the slide on the left is vehicle traffic in the US relative to where we were in 2019, uh, truck traffic is up 10%, uh, uh, passenger vehicles down 10%. The chart on the right are global petroleum inventories. So after an all time high in April and May of last year, uh, globally we're back down to where we were uh, pre-pandemic levels. Could you put up the next slides, please? All right, so the slide to the upper left-hand side, focusing on the US because we get the US data earlier than we get out of most parts of the world, um, 2020, as, as we reflected on a minute ago, we saw the all-time highs in terms of petroleum inventories. I'm not gonna break down all the different product classes for you. And you can see where we are in the US now with that dark green line, where we're clearly below the range and we're clearly below the five-year average. If you go to the slide directly below that, you see the US refinery crude runs. And so after being in incredibly low levels last year in the 70s at the start of this year we reached north of 90 percent refinery utilization at the beginning of the summer so june july august very steady uh september not so steady uh but uh, hurricanes and weather had something to do with that and we've we've just recently crossed over above the five-year average in terms of refinery runs and if we look at flights, 
there are two charts uh, left. One is the uh, the U.S. passenger miles, not miles, but uh, U.S. passenger volume, and the other one is global commercial flights. Both are about 20% below our 2019 peak. If you adjust for the improvement in domestic relative to international flights, maybe total airline miles are down 25% from their peak. Um, but obviously, we're the, the seasons will so, soon change. But I think that just gives you a a little bit of a context as we get the conversation started. So to begin with, global energy inventories clearly went from all-time highs in 2020 to below the five-year average now. As we head into the winter season, how do you think about how this will impact the world? And how do you think about it in terms of how it'll impact your sector? And why don't we start with Jacob on that? Yeah, thank you. Well, as you just pointed to, uh, if we look at the recovery in consumption, clearly our sector and the world at large is uh, is on the right track. What has what has sort of uh, blocked a real fundamental step change in our market is that every day since June of 2020, demand has been higher than the actual production in sort of the ecosystem. Uh, and if we look back, uh, for instance, at August, where, where, where there you were drawing on a daily basis inventory at the rate of 2.7 million barrels per day. So that's about 3% of the daily consumption is actually taken out of exactly, as you pointed to, the inventories that, uh, that were built in Q1, Q2 of uh, 2020. So that means that currently, we are transporting less than what is actually the actual fundamental demand in the economy. And obviously, that as long as that takes place, we have a headwind in that the economy is recovering, but uh, transportation need is lower than what is actually there. In our opinion, uh, this is, you know, for, for various reasons, obviously not the sustainable new normal what will happen is that eventually uh, stocks and inventories will be down to a level where you will need to rebuild stocks and where at the same time the economy and the underlying uh, fundamental oil demand is still on a trajectory of recovery whether be it as you pointed to in the airline industry coming back to more normality also on long-haul routes uh, so i think it's it's a question of timing and none of us are really masters uh, of the exact timing, but clearly uh, to turn this now more than 18 months of that we've seen that consumption on a daily basis is healthy, improving, but that actually uh, the production is lagging because of, uh, of the inventories that we had. So, so once we have a more pain uh, currently in, uh, in the spot market for both crude tankers and product tankers, and I think that will persist until you see that uh, this curve of uh, depleting inventories is going to turn. And it will obviously uh, turn at some stage. Carlos, I'm going to ask you the same question, but I'm just going to highlight a couple of additional things. So 2019 was the greatest expansion in refinery capacity globally in over 40 years. Obviously, January 2020 ended up being 
not quite even an entire month of uh, celebration. Um, the um, touch base a little bit on how much of the product touches the water. And if we get to an environment where inventories need to catch up during a winter season, what that could mean from a disruption point of view and what that could mean for the product tanker segment as potentially a larger percentage touches the water? Carlos? Jim, yeah, thank you for the for the for the question, and uh, yeah, I, I think that what uh, Jacob highlighted regarding the, the inventories is is definitely key, and we, we are seeing that in other energy markets right now, and you know the risks associated with uh, inventories running too low, uh, as as is happening now for coal, um, and uh, to a lesser extent, but also uh, in the gas markets, and I think that. This is going to be key uh, also, I hopefully, for our market uh, this winter. I think that there is a huge pent-up demand associated with the uh, energy crunch that we um, are experiencing right now worldwide, which is going to be probably exacerbated over this, uh, this winter. Uh, there are uh rumors uh, of uh, huge orders being placed in china for diesel generators um i'm sure it's not only in china in other locations uh to to guarantee uh, electricity for for industry um and uh, a report from a renowned uh, uh brokerage house highlights that there is a potential uh, for use of oil in its various forms for production of electricity of around 20 million barrels per day, mostly uh, in Asia and the Middle East, of which only 3 million barrels per day are used. Of course, this is, these are huge figures. Uh, you know, only a few million barrels per day would, would, made, would make a huge difference. And as you pointed out, you know, the refined product industry is usually transporting between 22 and 23 million barrels per day uh, only by sea relative to you know oil uh, um, oil consumptions which are uh, pre-covid uh, almost at 100 million barrels per day and uh, refinery put uh, refinery throughputs which are around 80 million barrels per day so it's it's a small portion and one to two million barrels per day can make a, a huge uh, difference in the demand for for our vessels uh, and for our sector. So that, that, that is definitely an element of hope for us. Uh, and of course, uh, there is an ongoing uh, ramp up in production by OPEC, uh, and, uh, which means that there's more product to be refined. Uh, and nonetheless, the markets continues to be undersupplied and there are, there are inventory drawdowns. So OPEC might have to react uh, and supply more. We are, we are seeing that uh, uh, the U.S. shale industry is reacting uh, slowly, but uh, uh, but the drilling rigs are increasing. Uh, and uh, I guess once this uh, excess supply of OPEC has been fully reabsorbed, uh, they will react more forcefully, uh, and uh, and the U.S. shale production will also be a driver, hopefully, in 2022 of increased oil supply and increased refining, refined products moving by sea. 
Uh, Eddie, I'm going to start with you on this next question. Uh, November air traffic restrictions will be reduced. Um, is this the next big potential trigger for the uh, product space? Um, thank you for the question, Jim. Uh, I mean, you know, um, greater mobility uh, will be helpful. I mean, let's face it, uh, transportation fuels is a substantial uh, a part of the cargoes we're carrying. Now, specifically for airlines, the jet fuel, um, um, as you said, um, uh, demand consumption is 25 to 30% lower than pre-pandemic levels. Um, therefore, any uh, addition in mobility, any uh, addition in transportation will help. Um, of course, jet fuel is um, only approximately 10% of the cargoes we're carrying. Uh, therefore, what we see as the, let's say, the main driver coming in the next months is what our, my predecessors have um, said. Um, mainly, the you know we've seen a spike in the heating oils, and we've seen a spike in LNG, LPG, even coal. So um, this is where we expect the next big thing in products to come, the seasonal demand for winter for heating oil. So um, um, we expect a robust demand, especially as uh, inventories are coming down, for uh, fuel oil, gas oil, diesel, and naphtha. In the, in the longer term, um, and as vaccination is accelerating, and the global economic recovery is also accelerating, uh, this should re result in greater demand for refined products and, of course, improved charter rates. Michael, I'm going to ask you the same question, looking at uh, near-term likely reduction of restrictions of uh, air travel. Yeah, so <clears throat> thanks for that. I mean, I think... You know, I think most have been said kind of around what we expect of getting into this season. But I think what's worthwhile to, to mention here is that, you know, jet fuel, of course, is one. And I think we're all seeing as restrictions are being easing, of course, it will help. But I think another add-on here is that, as Jacob explained, in terms of inventories coming down, uh, you know, when the market has set itself up for where we are now, which means that any form of extra demand, will be sourced on a much more prompt basis than before. And, and, and what that basically means is that if you're short of a refined product, which is really a, a finished product, you know, you're gonna have to try to get it from wherever. It's not a, a long-term process. It's about trying to get something here and now. And what that always means for our market is longer ton mile. So you, you're kind of looking at an arbitrage volatility in prices uh, and longer distance that these products will travel because the actual demand will be diversified. And it will definitely mean, as far as we're concerned, that it's not just the absolute demand of, of barrels as such. It's actually the longer ton mile that we're going to see as a result of any incremental demand coming on now. I mean, Michael, to stay with you for just another second on this, if you look over the last half a dozen years, we've, we've been in that sort of 20 to 25 percent of all refined product touching the water. If we do have a, if we do have a tough winter, and as you put it, uh, deliveries are needed on a prompt basis. Where do you, obviously you mentioned ton miles, but where do you think the uh, amount of product that touches the water could go as a percent of refined product? 
Yeah, so I think, I mean, it's probably a bit dangerous to put a, a certain percentage on, but, but I think what I would just try to illustrate is that, you know, if you analyze the normal product tanker market or the tanker market in general, you can kind of take this what we call main routes. And so what you see in a normal market is that you're sourcing gasoline from Europe to United States, et cetera. And, and you know, you have certain routes that you can look at. What you see in, in stressed periods is that it's really from anywhere. I mean, it, we're talking West Coast, South America, long-term distance into Asia, where you see U.S. West Coast going all the way through to the, to the Western Hemisphere. So I, I really think it's, it's, it's not really about the absolute numbers alone. It's actually about people need to imagine that, that the ton mile goes up dramatically. And, and what you have in addition to that is, you know, when you start having uh, pressure on certain products, so what will happen is that you're going to have a lot of uncertainty. So what that means is in a more stable market, you have more predictability of where ships are going. In, in, a, in a market with high prices, volatility, and, and an abrupt need for products, you will have a lot of options on every ship, which means that none of these vessels are available for the next voyage. So that's an, an, an even add-on more. So there's a reason why when you look back in history, when you look at freight rates, and, and I think a lot of people are struggling with this, is why does it not go from 15,000 to 16,000 to 17,000? Well, it's because when you have situations like this, you, you take out basically overnight a huge percentage of available fleet for next positions. And therefore it goes quickly from 15 to 20, 25 and 30 type of thing. That, that's really the, the, you know, the logic behind it. Thank you, thank you. Um, Tony, the next one's for you. Uh, Stolt-Nielsen was the first out of the gates with, it, with its third quarter numbers. And if you strip out the fish farming and the terminals business, the, the uh, chemical tanker results were pretty good. Um, so let's assume that that wasn't a one-off. What are you seeing in terms of chemical rates? And the second part of that question for you is how do you see that as a read across for products if you do? Mm -hmm. Uh, just, just to start with echoing what everybody said so far about the market recovery, um, you know, we, you know, we has, have the same view um, that essentially the, you know, this very tight oil market is in a sense on a collision course um, with uh, the, you know, the coming winter conditions um, and the very rapid demand recovery. So, but en enough on that. Um, uh, so yeah, chemicals are interesting. Um, I think one big difference is that the chemical sector isn't dealing with the, uh, the, uh, the, the rundown in stocks that the, uh, the oil market is dealing with. Um, so I think that's, that's one key difference. Uh, the other one is that um, the, oil, the uh, tanker market tends to be more driven by oil market dynamics and, and a little bit less by GDP. Uh, the chemical tanker market is, is different. It's, it's the reverse where it's more tightly correlated to GDP. So where you're, you're not suffering from that, that drawdown of, uh, of overhang of inventory um, and where you're you know, more tightly correlated to a very, very rapid uh, 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 econ global economic recovery, you're going to see the, see the results. Um, you know, our ships are not like Stoltz. They're, they're coded. They, they trade more on the periphery, but we do trade a lot of chemicals with them. And uh, I would say that if you capital adjust, our chemical tankers are probably two to $3,000 a day ahead of the MRs. And Carlos, I'm going to ask you that second part of the question. How do you, how do you take the... Uh the constructive uh, rates out of the chemical tanker business and think about how that, uh, what that means for the product business. Yeah, I think of course there, there, there are linkages between the two sectors uh, um, and um, uh, the, the 
chemical tanker vessels can transport uh, also uh, refined products. And uh, when their markets are not doing well, they will increasingly look for those cargoes. Um, and so on the margin, uh, they can have a negative effect on our sector when the sector is weak and vice versa when the, when the sector is, is strong that can have a marginal positive effect for the product tankers. Um, and of course, uh, many product tankers uh, can also transport to a certain extent uh, easy chemicals or, uh, and uh, uh, veg oil and palm oil and, and therefore can benefit potentially from a, from a stronger chemical tanker market. But it's also important to put into perspective that the, the relative size of the two markets and uh, the, the chemical tanker market is, is much smaller. If you look in that way, uh, that way terms, it's uh, 48, around 49 million dead weight tons, uh, whilst the product tanker market is 176 million dead weight tons. So it's uh, 3.6 times larger than the chemical tanker market. So it's, uh, it's usually the other way around. A strong product tanker market might help more the, the chemical tanker market than the other way around. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, just to strike a, a bit of a sobering tone here, although I'm very positive and especially relating to the, uh, the spillover effects of the energy uh, crunch that we are experiencing on our sector, um, we do depend instead quite a lot on the crude tanker sector. And, uh, and the crude tanker sector is not uh, doing very well. <laughs> and uh, it will do better next year. Uh, but uh, my understanding is that their fundamentals are not as strong as ours. Uh, and so uh, we have seen that in 2008 when you know, crude tankers were snatching uh, clean cargoes on their maiden voyages, gas oil transporting them from the east to, to, to the west. And, um, and of course, there are the LR2s, uh, which can trade both clean and dirty. Uh, and uh, we have seen that over the course of the year, the percentage of LR2s uh, trading clean has increased quite a lot from 50% to 60%. Uh, and uh, that that creates uh, a drag for the product tanker market, and uh, so it it is really important for us that the crude tanker market do well. Uh, and in that respect, I would say you know that uh, the Fredericksons purchase of a of a big stake in Aeronav uh, recently announced is, is a good sign. Uh, he knows what he's doing, uh, and. Uh, uh, if he's bullish on the sector, uh, it's, it's a good sign for the crude tankers uh, space and uh, hopefully also for us. All right, let's, let's, let's go to the supply side for a minute now. The lack of new builds or, or the relative lack of new builds, uh, can it last long enough to create a meaningfully positive cycle? And why don't I start with Eddie on this? Uh, yeah, thanks, Jim. I mean, the supply outlook for product tankers looks promising. Um, the overall order book is about 6%, um, 6% of the global fleet, and at, let's say, historical low levels. So the new orders are less than the deliveries. Um, and this is because, uh, you know, we've seen, we, we, we're, in, we, we're in a prolonged depressed uh, rate environment, and that has averted new orders. 
Um, in addition to that, um, the, the new building prices have uh, increased substantially since last year. And I give you an example, um, an MR2 this year has been quoted by a reputable Korean yard at 41 million. When last year, same shipyard was quoting 36 million. This is for a standard MR, um, uh, nothing, spe nothing special about it. Um, now, I'm also, you know, there's a developments in the technology, so um, engine designs, um, stricter environmental regulations, um, and of course, the selection of the potential carbon-free uh, fuel. Um, this is a very complicated decision-making, therefore, many owners have decided not to proceed with uh, um, placing new buildings. Uh, a very encouraging uh, sign that we've seen this year is scrap ratings. And uh, as far as the MR sector is concerned, we've already seen about 30 vessels being scrapped, which is the highest we've seen uh, in one year for a long time. So overall, we estimate the net supply growth for new, building, new buildings to be approximately 2% annually for the next two years. Um, now, if the global demand growth goes as expected, uh, then the sector uh, could experience a substantial recovery. Um, and um, for a sustainable period, and this is what we need uh, in the product tanker segment. And Jacob, I'm going to ask you the same question. The lack of the relative lack of new buildings. Can we create a long enough cycle this time? Yes, I subscribe to what Eddie just came into. And I think in the medium term, clearly it is teeing up well for us because as, as Eddie pointed to, if you're a shipyard right now, you're being overwhelmed by container liners who are really scrambling to get capacity up. And if we take this first half of the year, I think the overall contracting into container was... Historically high for a six-month period of twenty-six and a half billion dollar or something, you know, fantastic. And and at least for now, the global supply chains are so constrained that uh, shipyards will continue in this environment to get a lot of phone calls from uh, from big players in the in the liner industry. I'm sure, and that of course pushes back any eventual sort of stepping back into the uh, building of product tankers is being postponed basically every day that there's gold and glitter in, uh, in containerized and, and in dry. So I think for us, uh, clearly, uh, product tanker vessels, building of that is a low priority. And that's also why the price range that is being quoted is significantly higher today than it was. And it's not because of the underlying markets uh, having pushed up uh, the prices. So I think I think uh, that this goes well for the medium term. Obviously, eventually, there's going to be a new dynamic, uh, both in the alternative business for the shipyards and also in our segments. But this could push back uh, an eventual real sort of supply-driven fall uh, on its knee in this market by three, four, five years. Okay. Uh, this next question, I want you all to, to pitch in, and I'm going to start with Michael, but when do you see peak energy? And are the green alternatives 
a medium-term or a long-term competitor? Michael, starting with you. Thank you. Yeah, so I mean, I think if, if you're going to determine, you know, the uh, the, the peak oil, uh, yeah, I don't think it's really for us individually to kind of come up with our guesswork, but I think it's pretty widely recognized that when you look at different international organizations and, and, and analysts that, you know, it could be anywhere, you know, from the late 20s um, to even further out. And, and I think, you know, I don't think there's any doubt where the world is heading. And I think we're all here as well in the shipping industry, you know, very much, you know, preoccupied with trying to adapt our business in terms of how can we improve what we do uh, in terms of our environmental footprint as one thing. When it comes to what we're sailing with, I think, you know, I think we have to be a little bit careful, um, kind of not to uh, underestimate the time it will take to change some of these massive infrastructure things that need to be changed in this whole green transformation. So, you know, I think our view is that at least the assets we have today, um, you know, we are super comfortable, you know, to run them as, as long as need be. And we think oil will be a big part of the complex going forward. So, you know, I think once you reach a peak oil scenario, it's not going to fall off in our view anyway, off a cliff overnight. It'll be, a, you know, it'll be a sunset discussion that will go for many, many years. So I think the clue is really to try to have a competitive business to stay kind of ahead of the pack, if you like. Um, but our view is that at least for the existing assets going forward, that, uh, you know, oil will be an important part of, of the energy complex and, and, you know, we'll continue to transport it as long as there's a demand for it. And at the same time, you know, for the for the longer term situation, you no, know, you need to 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 adapt your business to what would be the future you know, transportation needs. And you know, still, I think the the jury is out in terms of what kind of products. And, and in our view, anyway, there'll be there'll be more than one. Will be you know the future renewable energy uh, use for particularly in in the transportation sector. Um, so that's kind of our view on it. Tony. You, you studied science better than most back in school. Um, what's your view on the uh, peak energy and the uh, green alternatives? Um, so just, I just think I make a very important point. Uh, peak oil is not the same as peak uh, product tanker demand. Um, we have secular trends that are ongoing and in fact, probably accelerating in terms of where refineries are being built. <clears throat> 30 years ago, 10% of demand, sorry, 10% of oil moved was products. Uh, today it's around 35%. So there's a very long-term secular trend uh, that will continue to drive product tanker demand beyond peak oil. Um, you know, when that happens, we're probably into a very different world in terms of regulatory compliance. And then probably uh, the supply side comes under tremendous pressure um, and you're really dealing with, um, you know, with, uh, with uh, uh, capital expenditures for new, new replacement vessels. So the the market at that point could be a supply-driven market. So, you know, we're not, you know, we're going to be going through very, very substantial change in the next 10 years. Um, part of that will be uh, peak oil, um, but a big part of it will be the uh, regulatory regime that's eventually imposed on us, um, which will result in uh, new ships. Um, you know, in terms of demand for green cargoes, uh, we're very focused on what we think of as sustainable cargoes. Um, and uh, part of that will be, um, different types of renewable fuels, which will be um, you know, moved largely, we think on product and chemical tankers. Thank you. Uh, Jacob. Yeah, thanks. 
thanks. Uh, I think my colleagues have already put it uh, put it well. But if you take uh, the very short end, then I think there's a lot of talk, uh, fortunately, about the green transition. Uh, the fact is probably that let's say within the short to medium term, uh, the rebound in economic growth that we are experiencing will outpace any impact from the green transition that is actually uh, taking place, let's say, at least in the coming year. So I think when we're discussing this theme, it's probably something that is closer to the end of this decade or into the next uh, decade. And an example is, obviously, I think we're all hopeful uh, for for the world that green alternatives will take, they will be taking a larger and larger share of the energy complex as we uh, as we head uh, into the future uh, jointly but if we even assume that evs is is probably the sector that is logically first to sort of transform itself from the current energy uh, uh, complex into uh, the passenger cars are electrified and let's say that 75 80% of all cars globally within the next decade is going to turn into becoming electrical, then out of the pool of, of cars in the world, it's still only going to be 20%. So this is a long journey. It's not a, it's not a short journey in any way. I think the responsibility, as Michael and, and Tony also said, is actually on us to still fulfill the role of transporting it and transporting it, obviously, with the lowest emissions possible, with the lowest CO2 footprint as we are supplying the world with one of the products that is needed uh, in the value chain. And it's gonna then over time transform into uh, to, to a number of different products uh, in addition to the ones we know. But it is so that, that the services that we have together on this panel and, and in, the, in the broader space of, uh, of, of all fossil fuels is actually still very much needed. And I think the energy crunch right now, as we debated a little earlier, is a very good example of that. Now, Eddie, I know your time is limited, so why don't I have you answer that question, but also just touch base on anything else that uh, you wished I had asked you in the first uh, 35 minutes here. Jim, I thank you and I apologize for having to leave early. Um, I, I, do not have to, I don't have to add anything. I think I, it's uh, been very well said by my colleagues. Uh, only thing I can say to um, the, the audience is that uh, um, product market, tanker market has been disappointing for the past year, but the signs look good for the next, uh, um, for the coming months. Um, we really believe that uh, a sustainable recovery is on, uh, about to, uh, to happen. And therefore we have strong belief in the market. And again, I thank you very much for um, inviting me today. Thank you. Uh, Carlos, feel free to touch on the last question, but I also want to jump into day rates and share prices were on balance a little bit stronger in Q3. And what are you seeing in terms of uh, asset prices? Yeah, I think the, the last question was covered very well by uh, the other panelists, so not much to add. Uh, just a quick uh, data point. To, to understand the, of course, the, 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 the threat from EVs is that uh, the EVs sold last year globally represented 5% of total car sales. 
but still EVs in circulation today uh, represent only 0.6%. Of course, in the countries, uh, in some countries, the, the, this penetration is bigger, the growth is faster, but there are also many other countries which are lagging well behind and will lag well behind in this penetration of EVs. And it's important to remember that the car fleet was, is going to increase over the course of the, of the next few years. And, uh, uh, and quite uh, quite a lot. So uh, so I think EVs are a long term threat. They are not an immediate threat, and there are many other forces which will be overwhelming uh, in the short term. Uh, and uh, uh, going on to the to the next question uh, regarding the, the the asset values and the and the share prices, um, uh, I, I would say that. Uh, we have seen actually an increase in asset values, especially for young tonnage over the course of this year, uh, which uh, is driven, uh, I would say, uh, partially by the uh, pool effect of the increase in new building prices, um, um, uh, which we already mentioned, and the increase in demolition prices. So uh, exerting a, an upward uh, force both on the front end and the, uh, uh, the, the last part of the, uh, of the curve, of, uh, of the price curve for young and uh, old tonnage, but also because of the good fundamentals, uh, near to medium term fundamentals for the industry. So, um, so we, we now see that uh, secondhand uh, tonnage is still at a, at a big discount to, to new building parity, despite this increase in, uh, in asset values. And uh, share prices are lagging behind, uh, but they, you know, they will recover. Thank you. Um, Jacob, do you have anything to add to day rate share prices or, uh, or asset values? Or would you like me to move on to the next? I think Carlos, Carlos put it uh, well. We are not in an excited environment on uh, on day rates, uh, any of us, uh, whether in food or or product. And uh, and as Carlos put well, you know, the replenishment cost of a new vessel has gone up simply because of uh, of the nature of the shipbuilding industry, and that that leads to that probably on average, uh, older price older vessel prices have uh, uh, gone slightly down and for new assets it's gone slightly up i think that's that's the general the general market sentiment right now not much more to add okay listen the, the next question there there are clear performance differences amongst the players in this industry so the first part of this question is why hasn't there been more consolidation and the second part of the question is why is, why is there so much of a, of a fixation on priced NAV? And why don't I start with Michael? Thank you. <clears throat> well, I mean, I think on, on the first one uh, around consolidation, I think it's probably a combination of, of a lot of different issues. I mean, you know, there are, there are situations where, you know, control is important, right? And where, you know, certain shareholders, you know, prefer actually to stay in control rather than, then, then maybe combining and thereby, you know, losing part of that. And that could be also related to exit plans, et cetera, that, that has to be planned. Um, that's probably also an element of sometimes of, 
of you know free composition <clears throat> and how people see the future and what they would like to to combine in that sense. So there could be differences in earnings and performance, but there could be a reason for not consolidating certain platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so so I, I don't think so. I think as far as the industry is concerned, this is something we've seen over years. I don't think consolidation. If you go back in in, in the days, were particular uh, you know particular. Uh, dominating, but I think what we have seen though is actually quite a bit more maybe than what we saw the years before. So I think, but those factors, I think to me, is, is some of the reasons why things haven't happened. Uh, on the other hand, we've also seen that things have happened where um, you know certain platforms have found that that teaming up is actually going to give you better valuation. And I'm now referring particularly also to to the stock listed environment. Uh, I think it does make sense when you look at what investors want in terms of scale size and particular free flow of shares uh, you know i do think that there is a, there's merit to certain combinations that could give that to shareholders um, so these are kind of you know at least my observations on that um, and your second question was on yeah, so the first part is why not why not more consolidation the second part of the question why the fixation on price NAV? yeah so, by the way, my final point is I still think we are going to see consolidation as we move forward, and particularly in terms of <clears throat> as we, you know, we look into a future where, you know, the energy complex, as has been talked about here in this panel, will change. And in that context, you actually need, in my view, scale and financial strength to be part of that transformation as you slowly but surely will look for the future in terms of different investments, different types of ships, et cetera, to adapt to that. I think price to NAV is probably a legacy in shipping, right? I think we've been talking about this for many, many years. And um, I mean, I think so part of the reason, and it's something which we have been struggling with as well, I think in, in Hafnia, I mean, we have quite a big revenue stream of, of third-party business, pool business, you know, last year, 23 million. This year, even in a bad market, 10 million the first six months. And yet your pricing is very much linked to, to NAV. And it doesn't really take that into account. But, you know, I, I think there's still an element of, of you know, of poor visibility going forward. So NAV is an easier one to, to put a hook in as opposed to visibility for a company that is exposed to the spot market going forward. And, and the large swings that we have seen in certain markets, I think that's probably part of the reason why we're still stuck with the NAV. Uh, but it shouldn't be the only factor, in my view anyway, uh, valuing companies per se. Yeah, and just a very quick add-on to that with your third-party, with your third-party uh, commercial management business, has the market ever given you, in your in your view, the extra credit for that above the value of your shipping business? No, I don't think so. Not in the reflection of the share price. So I think uh, so far it has not been properly reflected. Um, and uh, but you can. That's also a combination of you just have to continue. I think to push and and reflect that. And I think in poor markets. Quite frankly, these are these are sometimes tougher ones to sell, right? But uh, you know, over a ten-year period as we are now, you should begin to see those valuations reflected in in the overall valuation of your stock. Tony, you know I'm coming to your next. Um, why hasn't there been, been more consolidation? Uh, good question. Um, <clears throat> so, a couple observations. Um, one is that so far, um, virtually all the consolidation has been driven by largely by private equity exits, um, and a little bit by financial distress. Uh, the second observation is that um, scale does matter. Um, we're in a highly fragmented business. 
Um, so the largest players have maybe 5% of the market, um, uh, which is, you know, very small. Um, and if you add the top 10, they probably account for certainly uh, maybe about 20%. So, you know, so the real, the real impact of fragmentation is the other 80%, where you've got people with two, three, four, five ships trading without sufficient information um, and uh, without discipline, et cetera. And so I think that's where consolidation could help. Um, so, so I think that that's not maybe you know, a, a point for discussion. Um, <clears throat> the advantage of the business we're in is that it's, a, a trade, it's, it's highly fragmented and it's a trading business. So it means that um, that if you have a really motivated team uh, that um, uh, where they're well aligned with shareholders, they can actually trade quite well. Without you know a, a, you know you don't have to be the largest to you know compete with the largest companies. Um, so you know it's it's a complicated topic. Um, uh, you know when it comes to price to nav, I think in one sense we should be very happy that we get value based on price to nav because it's really. It's really all about your returns on capital versus your cost of capital. Um, and the problem is if you have an increment, but you're still below your cost of capital, you're still below your cost of capital, right? So I think, I think the, the game is to transform business models so that your, your returns are exceeding your cost of capital. That's, that's business 101. Um, you know, that's, you know, I'm sure we're all trying to figure that out very privately on a long-term basis. Um, Jacob, do you have anything to add to the, as quickly as you can, either the price yeah. to NAV or lack of consolidation story? I think we've actually seen some consolidation in the sector over the last couple of years. Uh, I understand that it's not, uh, it's not everybody uh, that's been involved, but there has actually been consolidation taking place. And I think I agree with Michael that there will be more. Uh, it's not only driven by market knowledge. Uh, and, and a better understanding of uh, what the dynamics in the freight market is. I think it is clearly also driven by increasing scale uh, benefits on financing, regulatory, digitalization, ESG, uh, other elements where you can say, yes, you can have, as Tony say, a nibble trading organization, but, but there's going to be some requirements, uh, either regulatory or from investors and banks that will heighten uh, the burden on organization and therefore also the scale benefits. So I think, I think that's why it's, I mean, we've seen some activity and it is teeing up for even more. All right, we're down to the last question. You each have a minute or less to answer it. I'm going to start with Carlos. Um, what are you factually doing to improve your ESG profile? The clock is running. <laughs> No, well, we the, the, the major the, the main initiative for us was uh, the new building program that we undertook uh, starting in 2012 and with vessels delivered between 14 and 19 and where we invested over 750 million dollars in uh, eco vessels, which today represent 75% uh, of our own and bareboat uh, fleet. Um, of course, we also invest a lot uh, in the education of our employees, both on shore uh, and on board our vessels. And uh, we, we, we are involved in a technical school, the Fondazione Caboto in, in Gaeta, uh, where we train technical staff. Uh, we are involved with the National Maritime College of Ireland, 
Uh, we have been involved with six years with them and we, we offered the opportunity uh, for up to 18 cadets uh, to board one of our vessels. You're down uh, to 10 seconds. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to. <laughs> and of course, I think that we are you know, a very strong player in terms of the management of our vessels, the safety, the statistics, the vetting inspections, the control. So I think that the, the port state control statistics. So that, that of course is also a different trader. It's part of the ES, our ESG push. Thank you. Tony, next. <laughs> uh, we rather not speak about ESG, but rather progress. Um, but if you go through the letters uh, in terms of the E, we have our energy transition plan, which is uh, transition technologies, transition projects, and sustainable cargoes. When it comes to the S, um, we have a high degree of diversity in the company already. Um, uh, more than 50% of our staff is female. Uh, we've got 14 nationalities ashore, and we've got a very vibrant cadet program. Um, in terms of the G, um, we're the top foreign private issuer um, on the Weber gov uh, governance uh, scorecard. Excellent. Uh, Michael. Thank you. Yeah, so I think <clears throat> when we look at the um, on the environmental side, so we've been focusing on uh, on investing in, in digital solutions uh, with smart ships and Alpha Ori, which is basically about making sure that you have all the data available on your ships, which allows you <clears throat> to actually optimize on how you run them, both in terms of, of what I call voyage-related basis, but also in terms of uh, an overall predictive maintenance program. So having reliable data across the board for all of your <clears throat> maritime operations has been part of it. Um, we're focusing quite a bit on blended fuels as well, which we think will be an important transition. Um, working with arc fuels about turning, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> coal waste into being able to blend into oil. So that's another part that we think the blended fuel oil <clears throat> in general is, a, is an important part for the transition. Um, when it comes to the actual ESG side and reporting, we partnered up with someone called TitinX, which is really all about trying to develop for the maritime industry a proper standardized reporting structure, digital, that allows everyone to report to whatever standard is, is needed out there and where investors can then uh, measure across industries how you've been doing in terms of your performance and targets. And I think on the social side, as Tony also mentioned, you know, strict targets on diversity and inclusion, participating in, in charters around diversity and inclusion and having clear targets for what to achieve. Thank you. And uh, Jacob, you've got the last 30 seconds. Well, thanks a lot. And uh, ESG is, is obviously uh, becoming part of our lingo uh, every day. And in TORM, what we do about ESG is actually making it actionable now. And uh, I think it's been said here on an integrated platform, like for instance ours, we can really make a difference, you know, creating the greener future, not tomorrow, but today, making sure that we do our part of reducing emissions uh, already now, having uh, diversity at, as top of our list. And uh, also, again, if we look at the G, that on governance, we are also in the top quartile in the Weber famous uh, rooster. So uh, I think it's all of the above. Huh? Thank you very much. I learned something today. I hope the audience did as well. And I'll turn it over to Capital Inc. Thank you all. Well, let me tell you, I'm getting a PhD every day listening to this wonderful panel. So uh, I'm absolutely grateful to all of you for uh, a great uh, discussion. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. everyone.